0: Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Brief History of Power. I'm Colonel Willie Grills here with the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. We're going to talk about Nixon and we might even talk about Charles Bronson. We'll see where the date takes us.
1: The two things fit together so well. I'm so sure we well. I'm sure we will. Yeah.
0: Peanut butter and jelly, Chinese yep. food and chocolate pudding. So, um, <laughs> Adam, how are you?
1: I'm doing great. How about you?
0: Doing well. How is the weather in Denver?
1: Ste- steady? It's it's steady. It's a little cooler. Probably a high of sixty today instead of seventy like the last time we recorded. But very nice and sunny. How about you?
0: Oh, we are, um, uh, you know, cooler. You know, it's going to be in the sixties today. So. Nice.
1: <laughs> very good.
0: So we're getting down there. A little bit of rain. Uh, leaves are starting to fall. So that's nice. Starting yeah, to fall. Okay. Starting to fall. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> You're taking your
1: time. That's okay. Right,
0: it's okay. I'm a leaf respecter. I don't. Uh, I don't believe in <laughs> raking leaves or anything. Just I clear walkways. But other than that, they can stay. If if leaves touch green, we're good.
1: Something the audience probably hasn't pondered is that the climate described in the Book of Revelation for the new heavens and the new earth <laughs> is indubitably tropical. So.
0: Yeah, we, we, listen. You're all going to be wearing linen and pastels
1: in <laughs> in the new heavens. Yeah, the I sent out you know requests for city episodes, and I was hoping for Las Vegas, right? Miami. I so far <laughs> there is one for New Orleans, maybe, but most of them are for like Des Moines. Yeah. <laughs> you know? crowds crowdsville missouri you know (laughs) so so it's a little if you if you are interested in a in a warm and or green place
0: i want to i want a three-hour history of council
1: bluffs (laughs) something like that has come in uh i and i as i said in i think the last recording with pastor i i reserve the right not to answer any question i don't want to answer so
0: i mean I, i like runza you know, but...
1: <laughs> you know, I really don't. I really don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> I will not succumb to the psyop of just liking Central European food because yeah. it's there. Just pretending
0: so. that it's there. My my favorite are when people are like, "Well, I'm a, uh, I'm Czech." Like, no, you're not. Nobody's <laughs> actually Czech. That's not a real thing. That's yeah, not a real Zol- ethnicity. Zolyn
1: was claiming to be Czech, and he turned out just to be a cryptid. So there you go. <laughs> right. He
0: turned out to be some sort of skinwalker, but a wholesome one. (laughs) Well, all right. Well, uh, speaking of uh, odd religious folks, let's talk about a friend of the podcast, Richard M. Nixon.
1: Yeah. Richard Nixon is one of America's two Quaker presidents. And so the next time that someone tells you, well, the reason that there aren't a lot of you know, Lutheran presidents, there are in fact zero, is because, you know, we're just not a large religious group. Well, try being a Quaker. So, right, (laughs) and you're not even supposed to be okay with there being a military. So Uh, uh, nonetheless, they have two two presidents.
0: And the only other Quaker president was one of my favorites, uh, Herbert Hoover.
1: Yeah. I mean, speaking of questions about Iowa. So, right. So yeah, Hoover earlier in the 20th century and then Richard Milhouse Nixon was born into, he was actually born into a Quaker colony, essentially, in Southern California called Yorba Linda, where Whittier College is still something of a Quaker institution. His mother's family is the one that has the long Quaker heritage, um, including, they're kind of intertwined with the Cornell family, which are the namesakes of Cornell University his parents had moved out there basically for health reasons originally, and they were not particularly well off. And part of, if you read Nixon's memoirs, which are very well written and they were written, let's say in self-imposed exile after his presidency, but he's a good writer. He's an interesting writer. he's He's a great storyteller. You can, you can tell why he got elected to many things in his lifetime but his upbringing is very hard the family has a lot of health problems and there's kind of a beautiful saying of nixon that he actually took from dwight eisenhower that said we were poor but the glory of it was we didn't know it so if you're born in 1913 you're coming of age in the great depression and the idea that you're going to take your family's vegetables that you're growing truck them into Los Angeles every morning and then drive back to your Belinda in time to go to high school. just feels relatively normal. So this is something where Nixon's upbringing is is hard scrabble, but all in all to him, it's it's beneficial, even though maybe to people in a later time it would seem very impoverished and in a way, very limited because Quakers in mm-hmm. the early 20th century are not, they're not liberal in any kind of sense that we would You're identify like, that now.
0: Not like today, yeah. And, no, not even close. You know, Nixon is, you know, 20th century presidents especially, there's a fair number of them that come from relatively humble origins. Yeah. Yep. And we wonder if the era of that is is long gone You know, sometimes we think about the early presidents or the founders and how, quote unquote, elite some of them were. And that's true and not true, depending on who they were. But you look at the presidents of the 20th century, I mean, the 19th century, too, but just the number of them that weren't raised into elite circles that really did sort of fight their way up. And, you know, whether it was orchestrated or not, but, you know, the Bill Clinton podcast is down the road. But
1: (laughs) Yeah, that answering answering that is just too easy. So, but right. go on.
0: <laughs> it's just an interesting thing, you know, the American yeah. dream, perhaps still alive at the time of Nixon.
1: Yeah, yeah, you can tell that there are there are some functioning meritocratic machinery, you know, still in operation because Nixon goes to what at the time is really a a religious college. It's a it's a denominational college, Whittier. And the way that he begins to make himself known is through just excellence, particularly academic excellence. And I mean that 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 actually just another sort of touching story. And I know that according to our outline, we were going to start with the Nixon that we know, but <laughs> right. I mean it's just you know. Well, we can do
0: that very quickly. Uh, yeah, the, the Nixon right. that that everybody quote unquote knows is this kind of droopy dog looking guy who is yeah. sweaty. And who w- was not a good president and resigned in scandal, right? And everything except his jowls, you know, that we've talked about in that <laughs> brief little blurb is is just is just not true,
1: right? Yeah, I mean, the reason that he goes to this local school is because his tuition, his full ride to Harvard University, for which he applied and was admitted, so there's your meritocracy in action. Did not jive with the fact that his family needed to be taken care of. The family had a widespread history of tuberculosis and his mother had to take care of his brother. So Nixon needed to work at the family store. So that's why he stayed home to go to college. Mm -hmm. And at, at that time, this is the first time that he's really allowed to play sports. And he played basketball and football and succeeded both athletically, but especially academically. But yeah, none of this really jives with the idea that he is a sort of arch villain. Like he's, you know, he's the Yago of American political history. Instead, he's, it's almost, it's almost like, wow, did you make up this story for Hollywood's (laughs) benefit, right? Right. Boy stays home, takes care of family, makes family proud. And then the meritocracy kicks in again when he applies to go to Duke Law School and is offered a, a full ride to go there. This is all in the mid-1930s.
0: Yeah. And and so um, we're kind of trying to tie this a little bit into our Vietnam, trying to get into the 60s yeah. uh, and the 70s. But you know, our boy Nixon goes into the military – He's in the U.S. House in the late 40s and early 50s in yeah. Senate, and then notably vice presidency through most of the 50s into the early 60s. And then really where a lot of modern historians begin is the 1960 presidential campaign.
1: Right. Yeah. I believe we've mentioned it before in this series because of the power of television that Nixon is a figure reckoned by some when historians debate this it, it, was it jefferson or was it nixon who was probably our most intelligent president obviously that's hard to compare but nixon is not is a he has, he has sort of a face made for radio you know <laughs> <laughs> that's and that's you know he's he's a pre-television character whereas john f kennedy is was very much a, very very similar age also a a US Navy veteran of World War II Kennedy has a combat record in World War II which which Nixon does not and Kennedy is just a better looking guy and so what whatever occurred in in and because of the daily machine in Chicago during the 1960 presidential campaign which we mentioned before it was always going to be a close race whatever Nixon's qualifications were because of Kennedy's much greater uh, charisma especially physical charisma vis-a-vis the television screen nixon's defeat is then reckoned to be the you know effectively the end of his political career because he had gone up 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 until that time and then kind of stalled at the presidency
0: yeah i mean he tries to be governor of california after that <laughs> doesn't doesn't happen no no um,
1: well, yeah, and he goes up against Pat Brown who I we talked about in the Cities episode of San Francisco. So if you haven't listened to that, I would go back and and look at that because we talked about the Brown dynasty and something that Nixon never Nixon never has and this I think is going to be the source of his great difficulties in the 70s is that Nixon does not command as as most and I mean this in the strict sense of the word, Anglo politicians who are not Mormons do not have machines behind them Mm -hmm. in the 20th century. Unlike various sort of, you know, Ellis Island fraternity type Italians, Irish, Jews have in the Democratic Party, Anglo politicians of Quaker heritage or Methodist heritage or something don't have a giant machine behind them. So when Nixon goes up against a machine as he does in the 1960 presidential campaign or the 62 California governor's campaign, he's generally going to lose. It's it's really to his benefit that in 68, not only does he go up in the you know presidential election, not only does he go up against a non-incumbent, he's also running on a national scale where the machinery of a national party kicks in for him in a way that it doesn't in mobilizing votes necessarily in earlier times against incumbents or much larger machine politicians like the kennedy family
0: right so in 1968 he is he's going to run and he's um you know our boy's gonna pull it off
1: (laughs) and you keep you keep tipping tipping our hand (laughs) by saying our boy i mean you know it's like if I am wondering: Did the listeners come into the episode with the expectation that we were going <laughs> to affirm the take of Bernstein and Woodward on Richard Nixon? You know,
0: <laughs> right? And how much time do we want to spend on that nonsense? Uh, we'll
1: get there. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there.
0: Sixty-eight is an interesting election. You know, I mean, uh, Nixon solidly, soundly beats Humphrey, but Wallace takes uh, five states in that one. Right. And um, like a district, or he gets like one electoral vote in South Carolina, or Nor- I'm sorry, North Carolina. And uh, you know, interesting time.
1: Interesting time. Yeah, Nixon is Nixon is maybe the first Republican politician to begin to seek Southern votes, and he does that in a way that, if we can kind of set the stage for for partly why he was so hated on the left, despite. Yeah. his environmental record or his act, actually his support for parts of the civil rights movement which was very much in the 60s well, was very much I, a leftist and cause yeah go and ahead i
0: should say before the fact checkers come in and want to dispute me on soundly he defeats them he de- it's a handy victory in electoral votes it's a close right. vote in the popular race yes and it's a weird one because you have nixon taking virtually all the midwest Humphrey gets Texas, but all the other Southwest states are Nixon, Louisiana, Arkansas, go to Wallace. It's just, it's just a really interesting map if you want to look at it.
1: Yeah. And this is something where you go look at this map and what you're seeing is a realignment and some, some remnants of which are going to be extremely unfamiliar, like Oregon and California go for Nixon, right? That's, that's just completely unfamiliar to us at this point. Texas going to Humphrey, it's it's the only, depending on depending on what you think West Virginia is, I don't think it's the South. I think it's just its own thing. But right. okay, if you want to call it a Southern state, then Humphrey, the Democratic candidate, only gets two Southern states, one of which is, of course, Lyndon Bain Johnson's home state. So he's mobilized the machine that he's built over years and years and years f- for the sake of Humphrey. But the issue there is that this is the first election where the South is beginning to turn into a Republican bastion, which it, which it now is. And Nixon is really the father of what was called the Southern strategy, meaning that you appeal to white voters in the South, not entirely doing their bidding. And that's why I mentioned that Nixon is as you would expect from a California Republican, not terribly exercised by the question of segregation or civil rights. But what appeals about Nixon, and Nixon wins Florida, but Florida is Florida the South, right? That's at least as debatable as West Virginia. Right. But Nixon, is, Nixon appeals to the idea of law and order. So whatever you think about various legislative things or whatever, Nixon is going to say, you can't riot in the streets. You can't burn cities down because that's a live issue, not only in the South, actually, especially in the Midwest, it's a live issue in the mid-60s. Yeah. And Nixon's going to appeal to those people who say, we don't want to see this. We don't want to see the country burning down. And that's going to be a really successful strategy for the Republican Party from 1968, really down to today especially in the South.
0: Mm -hmm. So he he appeals to people and he becomes a very popular president. And if if you just judged him based on what the modern lens or the contemporary lens says, you know, you think everybody was protesting Nixon. Every movie, every TV show is always some hippie, you know, who somehow represents the conscience of every American at the time. Right. Talking about, oh, it's that stupid Nixon, you know, and... No, people, much like the myth of Vietnam, you know, having no support among Americans, it's the same thing with
1: Nixon. Right. Yeah. And this this is something that unless you talk to people who were alive back then, generally you will not have heard because you rightly point out that especially Hollywood's memory of the 1960s is very different from the 1960s. I mean, shocker, surprise, news at 10, you know, but the what what happens here is that nixon speaks over the heads of the media about things that americans are experiencing on an everyday level so this will ramp up as all of this will ramp up as we get into the 70s but just a couple of trends that americans see happening number 1 is cities and their daily functioning are increasingly disintegrating and that's true from the detroit race riots in I want to say that 67 off the top of my head through Haight-Ashbury blowing up in San Francisco. And what happens is that daily life becomes increasingly dissolute, confusing, and dangerous, in, especially in cities. And America at that point is pretty heavily urbanized in the whole scheme of things. And people don't want to see that happening. That's one trend. The Another trend is that we are looking at a country where people, partly because of media, and that's why we've talked about music and movies, partly because of media, generations are coming to disagree with each other vastly. Ironically, Nixon is the president who signs the constitutional amendment that's going to lower the voting age from 21 to 18. But Nixon appeals to the people who of middle age or old age who mostly vote, who mostly turn out for elections. And that's going to secure his popularity among that demographic so that between Nixon and Humphrey, you have a giant distinction as you also will in 72 when Nixon gets reelected in opposition to another very idealistic left-wing candidate in Gene McCarthy. Mm Mm-hmm. Nixon is the candidate of older generations uh, of the people who really are keeping the country running, right? He's not the candidate of college students. And so, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, so we will come back to um, continental issues um, in a minute. Let's talk about, you know, his two enduring legacies. Let's first talk about his strategy in Vietnam and then we'll go into China.
1: Yeah. His strategy in Vietnam is called Vietnamization. And in a nutshell, it's just the idea that because the war in Southeast Asia, and it, and it really is a, a regional war by Nixon's time, and Nixon will have to invade Cambodia in his mind to stop North Vietnamese incursions there, it's not really winnable for us. And what that really means is that Nixon does not see our media saturated democracy as capable of winning this war. So in our last episode in this series, we talked about General Westmoreland's strategy and Westmoreland is actually replaced during the electoral year of 1968 by LBJ, not by Nixon. So that General Abrams is the commander in Vietnam when Nixon takes office and General Westmoreland has been kicked upstairs to, to DC. Nixon doesn't see it as winnable, and this is this is very interesting in view of how he's actually going to be forced to leave office, because it has become politically, that is, media-wise, impossible to convince the electorate that we can win it, and therefore to ask for the sacrifices from the American population that are required to win a foreign war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the strategy that he's going to pursue, along with heavily increased bombing in Cambodia, Laos, and obviously North Vietnam, is to gradually replace American ground troops, which is where most draftees particularly are going to go. They're not going to be turned into bomber pilots. To replace those those draftees, those draftee heavy units with either special forces in the case of the special operations groups that are run directly by uh, MACV headquarters, but but particularly with Vietnamese troops, South Vietnamese troops. The question of whether this was ever a good idea on a military level, I think is a separate one, but it is part of what gets Nixon elected because what Mm -hmm. he successfully does, and I, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's sort of set aside the morality of this for a second. Like, do you think this is right or wrong? It's very politically savvy to say, I know that all generations are uneasy about our commitments in South Vietnam, even if they theoretically support the war in the case of the older generations. Therefore, I will say, we will try to win this war, but we will not try to win it with American troops, which is going to be his strategy in the Middle East, too. So, Vietnam and the Middle East for Nixon work in much of the same way, that he's completely willing to support allies, but he's not really willing to send American troops into those places in any greater numbers and to bring home as many of those who have already been sent abroad as he can. Mm -hmm.
0: Before we get into the Chinese, I'm going to take us out of Asia, because there's one thing I would like to talk about, and that was um, Nixon's involvement in Latin America during his term. Yeah. The Operation Condor era... Which lasts until the eighties, but you know we don't talk about it enough. <laughs> you know our, our our attempts to fight communism in Latin America, but the most notable, um, and you know, really, I love reading about Operation Condor. It Might be the only time that I was ever covetous of a CIA job in my life, because <laughs> all, all I really want to do is filibuster down there. I think I could do it. I think I would be uniquely suited for it. If 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 we need to stage another coup, you know, you know where to find me. But anyway. So the most notable thing that happens during uh Nixon's time would be the coup in Chile. Right. Where Salvador Allende is um killed in 1973 and then of course um Augusto Pinochet comes into power and and does does successfully protect Chile from communist invaders or communist usurpers I guess we would say revolutionaries that might be the better word. We 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 don't realize nowadays we forget that there is a there's a ground war that goes on in the 60s, 70s, and 80s with communist guerrillas fighting established governments in Latin America, and the United States is doing what she can clandestinely to uh, to, to stop that. It's always been alleged that Nixon authorized uh, money to print propaganda in Chile in the 70s, taxpayer money, but... That's all that is, is an allegation. We we do know that him and Kissinger, Kissinger together did actively work to to sway elections and in, in the in a diplomatic way.
1: Yeah, I mean, our involvement in Chile is, in its own way, probably one of the forms of American foreign policy with the absolute longest pedigree. Is that America has seen itself and has been seen at various times for various reasons by Latin American countries as the the natural hegemon in our hemisphere. And therefore, if you're Brazil or Argentina or Chile, some of the larger, more prosperous South American countries, you have some freedom of movement, but it's the same freedom of movement, I mean, politically and militarily, that Spain has in Europe that's fine mm-hmm. but spain always has to deal with france <laughs> right? <laughs> right and the continent always has to deal with britain and so because of our size and our wealth and and therefore our power it's the monroe doctrine whatever else it means means that america has a natural place in the life of the nations of this hemisphere and that's we can we can act like we don't right in in the way that anybody could say i have that power but i'm not going to exercise it for whatever reasons but what happens in chile i think is just a natural extension of the monroe doctrine and in and, and i mean if you will if you're concerned about all entangling alliances of any kind anywhere in the world it's a lot less intensive than anything that we did in central america in the first mm-hmm. 30 years of the of the 20th century right (laughs) Right. i mean no u.s marines were harmed in you know (laughs) in the deposition of this communist right so i mean we did we didn't try to go personally rule it like like we even did in haiti in the 90s so yeah
0: i mean you know we sort of did panama but officially they were their own
1: thing (laughs) officially (laughs) right panama grenada you know i mean this what are you gonna do they're not chile and 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 yeah what are you gonna do Right. So yeah.
0: So now that I've that you've indulged me, let's go over to China. Um, <laughs> this this might be the one where Nixon, you know, is looked at very negatively today because of what happened to our manufacturing base yeah. and our relationship with China today. But I think that's a little bit unfair. He might have he might have set the ball in motion for that, but I don't know that Nixon could have foreseen, you know, everything being manufactured in China, and he has bigger reasons for courting China. So right. Tell the folks yeah. at home a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, and and I mean that the Chinese have plenty of agency on their own. You know, they're they're not they're not a dependent, and they they never really were a dependency of anyone else. And that Nixon and Kissinger together perceived that, mm-hmm. and the, the strategy in China was a very simple one, and like pretty much every, particularly Republican politician from Southern California of his vintage, Nixon cut his teeth on being anti-communist so his you know his shift on china was not was what ha- actually had an anti-communist intention and it was this that he can grievously hurt if not destroy the power of the soviet union by separating from it the world's demographically largest country mm-hmm. And that in doing so, he would allow China to pursue a course similar to Yugoslavia, if anybody knows the history of that non-aligned but communistic country. And he would get China to, to perceive its interests as distinct from the Soviet Union, distinct from other communist countries. To speak to the manufacturing point, Nixon and Kissinger did not have to do with the man who's responsible for China becoming an an economic powerhouse, and that is Deng Xiaoping later in the 70s into the 80s, altering China's economic policy. Nixon had to do with Mao Zedong and with the practice of what's called in Diplomacy Realpolitik, a German word meaning, generally meaning realism that is i i don't need you to be perfect i just need to be able to deal with you and i need you to be right. honest about your political and economic interests rather than idealistic in the way that in american history a, a wilson or a george w bush is idealistic about spreading democracy abroad so nixon says to mao you know you, you don't you don't really have an interest in the soviet union that we can't help you with better. And the offer on the table here was basically to bring China out of isolation. And this would also not only weaken the Soviet Union's position, but make the Soviet Union more willing to negotiate with the United States rather than bring to bear a complete force of overwhelming communist force and opposition Right against the United States as it had in the Korean War,
0: yeah, uh, where we
1: actually fought Chinese troops. Right, right.
0: See, we're not used to strategy, and we're <laughs> and and you know one of the things Nixon's you know wanted to color his presidency was him being seen as a peacemaker. Right, and if you can avoid large scale war, that's one way to be known as a peacemaker. And <laughs> right, and it's it's disheartening to see America on both sides of the political paradigm just so quick to you know bomb civilians because facebook said so right they, yeah, they don't understand is... diplomacy um right. they don't understand the
1: process i guess we'll say Because yeah, they
0: played it, too many video games
1: it, i i think so and i think that what you could call idealism or stringent ideological commitments in foreign policy now come almost naturally to to people throughout the american sure. political spectrum so that realism is just becomes practically incomprehensible. But this has knock-on effects both north of China and south of China. South of China, Nixon's trying to prevent the Chinese from direct intervention in Vietnam as they had directly intervened in Korea. Okay, I think that's relatively smart. North of China, the, the knock-on effect here was that it caused the Soviets to come to the table, particularly on arms control. So some of the treaties that are going to be fundamental for American-Soviet relations in the 70s, 80s, into obviously the very early 90s when there still is a Soviet Union, the groundwork for that and the first two treaties, SALT 1, which is about self-imposed arms limitations, as well as the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, those both come out of the Nixon presidency. In fact, out of that, that second electoral year of 1972. So all of that is a strategy aimed at, like you said, peace. Which, if you think of him as having been raised Quaker, uh, makes a little bit of sense. And and it's not, you know, it's not Quaker subversion or naivete. He seems like one of the least naive Quakers I've ever learned of. (laughs) But but it is it is a commitment to keeping the country not engaged in existential conflicts with a billion people in China or another nuclear power, indubitable nuclear power in the Soviet Union. So, And he does actually achieve it.
0: Yeah. And then so putting this all together, you end up with a very popular president. Yeah, he is. More so than people realize.
1: Yeah, totally. And one gauge of this is that, 1972 and I misspoke earlier he didn't run against Gene McCarthy had run in 68. it's George McGovern who's his major opponent in uh, 72. Nixon as opposed to having you know lost parts of the Northeast and the Midwest um, having lost Washington State by 72 Nixon takes almost every state. so he's a Republican who won Hawaii. He's a Republican who won <laughs> Connecticut, as well as what at the time are are kind of giant swing states of New York and Pennsylvania. He wins Michigan, also a swing state. Then and now, I suppose the only I want to say major, I, you know, with apologies to Washington D.C., the only state that George McGovern wins in the low, in in the United States is Massachusetts. That's it. And so in 72, which is two years before he's going to resign the presidency under pressure, he apparently is one of our most popular presidents ever. I mean, this is a sweep similar to Reagan in 84. So this is all stuff that people forget because the Nixon that we know is a Nixon who is always under a cloud is sinister looking, which, <laughs> you know, he didn't have a unibrow. He he was, <laughs> he, you know, but the jowls make him sinister looking. He's not a good right. looking guy, you know, all of these things. He's and and just it's kind just of sweaty. Of, yeah. yeah, he's sweaty. <laughs> he's 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 weird. And he says nasty things about various groups of people on the tapes that he's yeah. keeping in his White House. All of that is a picture that is supposed to build up to Watergate. And it's interesting if, you know, maybe stop the podcast right now. And when you come back, you can see, when do you think the break-in at the Watergate Hotel was? Because if your picture of Nixon is common but fuzzy, you're probably thinking there was a break-in. And then after a bunch of media pressure for like a couple of intense months... Nixon resigned the presidency. Mm -hmm. And this is in fact, not true. Nixon doesn't resign for practically two years after the Watergate break-in, which happens in June of 1972. So that's before his reelection. And part of the reason for that is that I think what's so unknown about this period in American history is really how extremely dirty the politics are and that trying to using Cuban nationals to, um, <laughs> speaking of Florida, not really being in the South, using Cuban nationals to break in to your opponent's uh, headquarters, which is what the Watergate Hotel was at the time for the Democratic Party, is not really unique to Nixon at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what you have are standard political tactics. I, I'm not saying they're good. I'm just saying they're standard. Standard well, political I mean, tactics. Yeah.
0: Watergate's interesting, like, because Woodward and Bernstein, enough inks been spilled on them and deep throat and everything. But, you know, Nixon's actual crew, though, it's it's an interesting study on loyalty and traitors, because you have both within his administration. And you have extremely loyal men like a G. Gordon Liddy or somebody. Yeah, right. You have uh, Colson, who uh, I don't know, what do we want to call him? Is he a grifter? I don't know. That's that's probably uncharitable, but um, maybe a little. Anyway, maybe a little, a little bit. No, I like we we like Chuck Colson. He's fun. but um, you know, he's eventually betrayed by one of his inner circle, and that's really what leads to the intense pressure too. That's kind of the undoing of him. Yeah. And uh, and I drew a blank on the name, but I can see his face, John. But Dean. anyway, Dean, Dean. That's yeah. what I was going with. Yeah, it's Dean. Yeah who flips and he, and he comes across as ugly in interviews, you know, interiorly, like, you know, it's, it's basically, he tries to be high-minded, but it's clear he's trying to save his own skin here, but you have a guy like G Gordon Liddy. And I think it's Coulson when they're, when they've just been arrested and he thinks he's getting a a message from Nixon to kill Coulson. So he's ready to, he's ready to find a pencil or something and put it to use because that's how loyal he is to Nixon. And you can appreciate that. Or, um, yeah, or, uh, you know, Pat Buchanan, somebody like him where Nixon is very much like Caesar in at least in in, in this way. I, I, yeah. It's,
1: no, I mean I think that's that's a great comparison because what you can see is a series of increasingly ramped up attacks, each one ineffective until the one that finally brings him down. So Nixon for instance, his his first vice president is Spiro Agnew. America's highest ranking ever Greek American. and Spiro Agnew is brought down and his, his resignation is forced in 1973 due to charges dating back to his time, not only as governor of Maryland, which is what Wikipedia would tell you, but even his time as a county commissioner for Baltimore County, Maryland, not the city, but the county. Very big difference, if you've ever been. And all of that is an attempt to get to Nixon. So this is... These are easily recognizable tactics because you're seeing them in real time today with Trump and everyone around him. Yeah. But that playbook was already used on Nixon from years and years and years before he resigns the presidency.
0: Yeah. And it's just very clear. They were just going to keep digging until something stuck. And that's what they got. Right. And they keep trying that today. Nothing seems to stick. But eventually you throw enough, something's going to land. And in a, you know, how how corrupt or incorrupt is the justice system. But that's probably a podcast for for another time. (laughs) You know, Nixon is going to resign and he's going to be quiet for a while. And he's going to actually reemerge in the 80s and 90s, start giving interviews again. You know, he's always going to be dogged by the scandal of his resignation and by Watergate. Right. Unfortunately. But there are some very good interviews with him in the eighties and nineties. And he's able to talk about this stuff and he's able to talk about the situation at the time, not just pertaining to Watergate, but all of the, the national and world related issues he's dealing with during his presidency. And he still, you know, handles everything with grace, even in his later years, I I think just don't watch the unedited interviews in between commercial breaks. You You might think a little differently, but
1: yeah. And I think if you, if you do watch those interviews, if you do listen to him, you can see a mind at work, which is somewhat uncommon in politics, not only in its capacities, but also in its reflective ability to both assert that he was not wrong, but also to explain the decisions that he had made that were. right. That if in an overall way, he was not wrong and he resigned for the good of the country. I think this is somewhat like his Vietnamization policy that he feels himself boxed in. And maybe this is simply his estimation of what was possible rather than what was good. That all that was possible in a media-saturated democracy was to exit once you had been defamed by that media, mm-hmm. which is which is really what happens to Nixon. And this is even contained in the name of the tape from his office that was reco- that was subpoenaed essentially um, by the impeachment proceedings in the House of Representatives. It's called by the media the smoking gun tape. Right. Because what it was, was Nixon accepting that he had either lied or been insufficiently forthright, however you want to spin this, in explaining the, the White House's involvement in the Watergate break-in. Again, you have to remember, he's not really unique. The Republican Party is not unique. His re-election campaign is not unique. They're unique in both getting caught and also in this being made a cause celeb by the media, right? So it's not like in 1967, there was a similar problem about Lenin Bain Johnson, who had done incredible things, both in Texas and nationally. Right. Nobody knew about that. So you're dealing with a man who I think in some ways, one of his greatest weaknesses, Nixon that is, is that he lets himself get boxed in and then tries to do the best thing he can do after he's been boxed in. He doesn't have some of the (laughs) sort of brash fighting spirit that you see in Trump when he gets boxed in, <laughs> right? Right. Where Trump is definitely not not as intelligent as Nixon, but he is smart enough to say, okay, this is what happened. I'm going to explain to you why I think it's a total fabrication. Nixon doesn't do that. There is a decorum right. in Nixon, and and it's part of the time, I think, that allows himself to be boxed in and then has to deal with what's happened. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And so that's that's Richard Nixon. Now, again, he's he's one that you need to go look at, read his read his memoirs, kind of learn learn about the guy. You know, because he's gonna be followed by Ford. Okay. Carter.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Michigan. Uh, Thank you, Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: And then of course Reagan, who looms very large in the American consciousness. Then George Bush gets his turn knocked off the horse after one term. Bill Clinton comes in, Bush back you know, Obama here we are, yeah, so there's actually quite a few men in between it's kind of hard to sit down and think you know in fifty years since his resignation, a lot's really changed and the and the man who occupies the seat in the White House has really changed what kind of man we expect George H. W Bush probably the last of the old guard to be elected president, I would argue
1: yeah. And that's just going to be the way it is. I mean, they're all dying off. So he's he yeah he's the last non-boomer. Since then, we've had four yeah. presidents born in 1946, for example. Right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's going to be that way for
0: the next couple of election cycles. I think
1: <laughs> they won't allow anything else. Are we else. talking about the church or this or the state or what are we talking about?
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <So. laughs> I mean, I I think the reason that we that we mentioned Charles Bronson at the beginning of the episode is because if you have the media's image of Richard Nixon, you don't understand either why Nixon was so popular, or why the Death Wish franchise became so popular. You just have no idea. The '70s make no sense, yeah, unless you go back and you look at why were these two things what you know and and. We need to set up what was Death Wish. Yeah. Why were these two things so ex- exceedingly popular, both yeah. the Nixon campaign and, and this franchise?
0: And I've teased this before, a, a broader you know, uh, tackling of this issue uh, yeah. before, like, what's going on in the 60s, 70s, and on into the 80s in America? And so with Death Wish proper, you're going to have the rise of crime in the cities, crumbling infrastructure, all the stuff that gets Nixon elected, essentially. Uh, the rioting, it, it's dangerous in major cities, particularly New York City. But all across the country, you are actually seeing at that time mass shootings, news station hijackings, airplane hijackings, ethnic militant groups taking over city blocks, things that are just not talked about. Arguably worse than today, because what you had with the riots a couple of years ago, where they flared up for a few days and went back, we kind of had a protracted situation in the '70s, and we're getting there today. Admittedly, I think it's yeah. going it, it we're, we're near protracted, but in 1972. Brian Garfield writes a anti-vigilante novel called Death Wish about a architect whose family is assaulted and he seeks revenge and the is don't seek revenge. Well, in 1974 uh, they made a film version of it directed by Michael Winner and starring Charles Bronson, which took a decidedly different view of, of vigilantism <laughs> because if you hire Charles Bronson and, and here's the character he plays, Paul Kersey and Paul Kersey is a liberal city architect who literally says that his heart bleeds a little in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. He's accused of being a bleeding heart liberal. It's you cast Charles Bronson. You know, he's going to start killing people. And so uh, originally they wanted to cast somebody like Jack lemon, somebody like that in the role, but Michael winner likes to make action movies and likes to make masculine movies. And so they cast Bronson and it becomes a very, Popular movie in its time, very celebrated movie. And this is well before Bernie Gets or anything like that. So, you know, essentially the movie begins with it's, it's your typical upper middle class, maybe even upper class character, liberal leaning and doesn't really see the forest for the trees. But the reality of the situation in America comes to him when his uh, wife is murdered and assaulted and his daughter is assaulted um, by people who... Get their address from a grocery delivery form. One of them played by Jeff Goldblum. But is that his first um, appearance? I think that's. I believe that is technically his first appearance. And so, um, (laughs) it's a a, a spoiler alert for a you know for a fifty year old movie. This is also why I will never have groceries delivered. That movie is so ingrained in me that I will just pick them up. So, so, at this point, I want to quit calling him Paul Kersey and just say, Charles Bronson is, is made to take a vacation. He goes out to Arizona to do some consulting. There he meets a redneck member of the gun culture. And you know it's a 70s movie because he's gifted a gun, and it's like, you're checking your bag, right? Yeah. And then he can just take it on the plane and go without anything else. So, anyway, long story short, he um, he becomes a vigilante. And the original film is a very grounded and serious movie and a very dark movie and it it really resonates with the people of the time the country is getting fed up with this this is a time in America where gun ownership is not actually as common as it was today handgun ownership is much less common in America in the 70s than it is today and people are scared they don't see a way out and they find catharsis in a movie like Death Wish because they're seeing you saw this in, in other movies to a lesser degree like Walking Tall for example but that deals with southern political corruption. But people just, since time immemorial, love a good revenge story. But ironically, that's not what Death Wish is about. Paul Kersey does not get revenge for on the people who harmed his family. He just goes out to take care of whoever needs taken care of.
1: Because of the the levels of gun ownership, do you think it's significant that he goes to the Wild West? I mean, what Absolutely. what is that yeah. that he goes?
0: Yeah, it's it's why so. Why do you think that is? It, it's so on the nose in the movie. He literally goes to Arizona and watches a Wild West show. Yeah. And, and, um, and and even has a dialogue, you know, with his son in law later, who's just like, you can't do this, dad. You know, what are we? We're not pioneers or whatever he says. It's like, yeah. well, if we're not, then what are we, son? You know, typical Charles Bronson. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he goes to Arizona, and watches, uh, you know, White Hat versus Black Hat shooting each other with blanks. And then, yeah. uh, and, and then he, his uh, the guy he's working with um, takes him to uh, the gun club, and from there they have a dialogue on the dangers of guns and everything like that. But yeah, there, uh, yeah, to go back to your question, there, yeah, he has to go to the Wild West to learn what it means to be free and to not be scared anymore. And so the right to protection, you know, kind of yeah, is key there. Right. Why why do people in the movie Death Wish feel so insecure because they can't protect themselves? and the government isn't doing anything. It's the ineptitude of the police, and that's one of the struggles in the movie, where the police put all these resources into finding Charles Bronson, but they won't do anything about the actual crime on the streets. Now, this is actually going to be interesting, because it's going to go up into the 80s, where... So, you have this grounded movie, Death Wish, 74. Then, about seven years later, you have Death Wish 2, which is going to be made by, you know, or eventually be made by the Cannon Group, and it becomes much more of an exploitation movie. And the moral of the story is don't be a woman close to Charles Bronson because you're not making it out of the movie. So they make death wish two, which is in California. And then they make the masterpiece death wish three, which is this hyper uh, version of what's supposed to be New York in the eighties, even though it's filmed in England, which totally looks like New York. And, And while it seems goofy and over the top, and it is, it's a reflection of how people viewed New York before Rudy Giuliani. So if you want to know why why people like Giuliani so much, watch Death Wish 1 and Death Wish 3. And I don't care what anyone says, Death Wish 3 is a masterpiece. And uh, and then my personal favorite, Death Wish 4, but we're back in California, and time doesn't permit me to talk about 4. So, anyway.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we brought up Death Wish. And we didn't bring up Dirty Harry because I actually think Death Wish matters more. It, it does. I agree. As a, right. As a reflection, not of, oh, here are Crooked Cop, because some of the chaos of the seventies is on view in Dirty Harry and Dirty Harry is of course set in Northern California, not New York. New York is a much larger city, vastly more Americans, particularly in the early 1970s live in the Northeast than anywhere else still. Right And th- it it's taking you back to something that's also going to be part of the image of Reagan mm-hmm. and part of the image, at least of the latter Bush, if not the first Bush, mm-hmm. which is that America needs to be saved by cowboys. Now, Nixon yeah. is not a cowboy at all, but that attitude of you need to fix your own problems because yeah. unlike in Dirty Harry, it's not just that the authorities are corrupt. Nobody's going to help you.
0: Right, right. And, and yeah, and see, Dirty Harry, at the end of the day, is a cop. Dirty Harry <laughs> you know, is a cop. He, That's he's right. A, he's a government official who doesn't do things by the book, but he's still authorized to do things. Correct. Paul Kersey is not. He is just a guy in New York who is scared and and tired. And there are scenes in the movie that reflect this when they're doing interviews uh, with people, you know, in New York. I mean, it's it's again, Death Wish One is very different from the rest of the franchise, and it's definitely worth watching but the same thing happens to Paul Kersey as kind of happens to dirty Harry as the series goes on he becomes like a superhero mm-hmm. but he he's not that in the first one it's it's a very different movie and some people cringe at that I know it's a it's it's kind of a thing in the sinon now to um to hate to deny the biblical right to self-defense or something like that but you know Death Wish does provide an outlet for people who are fed up with things
1: and they don't make movies like this anymore Yeah. And I, I think that it's, it's no, they don't because one thing that gets just sort of remembered without any explanation is that tons of people left cities in the sixties and seventies and that, and that gets called white flight. And then if you come back, it's called gentrification, but it's bad either way, right? Like you can't win, (laughs) but okay. Why are they leaving is because the idea that you could defend yourself or defend your neighborhood gets anathematized legally it's now being anathematized theologically but the reason that he goes to arizona arizona is not just a shift in the movie geographically it's also a shift back in time and i think yeah what the cowboy says to paul kersey is very interesting because he says we just wouldn't put up with that here
0: yeah exactly yeah we just would and then there's a pretty long discussion about how he thinks that they view gun guys out east and it's largely true how they view them. And uh, it's, it's a good discourse. It's a good discourse. Of course, you know, serratipitously in the, in the movie, Charles Bronson happens, just, just happens to be an expert shot. For the first time at the gun range, but he explains why. So yeah, it's uh
1: is he a Korean war vet? Is that what it is?
0: Conscientious objective. Uh-huh. That's, that's what he says. Yeah. I, I believe, I believe he don't quote, quote me on it. He does say he's a. a He's a conscientious objector in it, I think. Now, the real Bronson was. Yeah. Yeah, that's did, right. It, it, okay. Yeah.
1: That's what I'm... Okay. Yep.
0: Yeah, but I think I think he says he's a conscientious objector and was a medic or something in the movie. By the way, the 4K just released, so now's a good time to go watch Death Wish. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think what a term like white flight is going to cover over is what happened to people in specific instances like what crimes were committed what did they remember because it's not like Kersey is is just pushed over the edge by listening to too much Rush Limbaugh <laughs> right may his soul rest in peace
0: he, he's an actual victim of, he's of a he's pushed over the ed- yeah
1: by Instacart right i mean it's yeah. it's it's 70s Instacart and exactly. because of what happens to him he just cannot take it anymore whereas his son-in-law who weirdly calls him dad yeah all the time his son-in-law his reaction to crime is to say, well, that's just what happens. You know, like this is just, yeah, it's crime is like the weather, you know, like sometimes it rains, like, what are you going to do?
0: Right. It, exactly. It's just, you know, it's, it's kind of like, they would say, um, oh, it's the price of living in a big city.
1: Yes. You know?
0: Right. Like, I, cause I think the discourse, like I said, Death Wish is a good movie, a little on the nose, but it, with his uh, son-in-law, yeah, who calls him dad, it's like, Paul says something like, what about the old American custom of self defense? If the police don't defend us, maybe we ought to do it ourselves. And that's when, the son's like, we're not pine anymore. Is it? We're not pioneers anymore, Dad. Yeah. And then Paul's like, if we're not pioneers, what do we become? What do you call people when they're faced with a condition of fear? Do nothing about it. They just run and hi- excuse me. They just run and hide. And the son says, civilized. And Paul says, no.
1: That just hits. And that's a. That just <laughs> yeah. hits so hard. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Civilized? No. This is good. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> ten out of ten, Death Wish, <laughs> and I've never seen the other ones, so you got
1: to watch three. Yeah, okay, and and then four. You can ignore five, but you yeah. know, I, I it's it's also I mean it's it's a it's it's an insight that you're going to get in any Western worth its salt, and I, I so I don't mean all of the hackneyed ones. There was a lot produced, particularly in the fifties and sixties, but even a book, let, you know, not a TV show, not a, not a movie. Is that you're going to realize that law and order, which is Nixon's ticket in '68, is not just a function of the police. And it never has been. And that at smaller levels of organization, if you're talking about, you know, a town in the novel Warlock by Oakley Hall, which is significantly based on what actually happened in Tombstone, Arizona, that you are dealing not only with that there is a lawman, mm-hmm. right? That's that's a, the, the the dirty Harry story is we need the right kind of lawman, right? The Death Wish story is sometimes there are no lawmen, right? Who are not private citizens? Yeah, absolutely. And
0: you know, they did remake it with Bruce Willis. <sighs> I'm, Actually,
1: I'm sure. They, they, I'm sure. I'm sure it's horrible by comparison.
0: It, I'm sure. By comparison, it is. They technically remade it twice. They did a death sentence with Kevin Bacon, but then a true Death Wish
1: remake with with Bruce Willis. So they tried. They well, failed. It would be interesting to know, is the private citizen's desire for law and order? How does that get treated later on? Because I feel like that the reason that we are questioning the right of self-defense, let alone the idea, which is actually what ha- a vigilante, by definition, is not engaging in self-defense. Right. He's He's engaging in... Law and order in a in a situation where that is not officially yeah, in, available in, in an extrajudicial capacity, extrajudicial capacity, yeah,
0: extra governmental capacity, right?
1: But you know there there are vigilance committees, which is where we get the right. idea of a vigilance. That's a common Western sort of yeah. we're between initial settlement and formal organization solution, right? From San Francisco to Reno to Denver, that's a common. And, yeah. and what's happening there is he's, by definition, protecting his neighbor. I, I think that the reason we're questioning self-defense at all at this point yeah. is because we have no concept right. of either protecting the neighbor in that way or even protecting ourselves. Like that impulse is just evil or something. Right.
0: And, and I will say on that remake, it actually, they changed the setting to Chicago, which gives it a very different flavor. Yeah. You know, so, and uh, they make it way too easy to get guns in Illinois in that movie, though.
1: does he even have to have a card
0: no there's no it's just the 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 gun uh i can tell that the writers based their the gun shop on every youtube gun channel they ever watched oh there you go yeah but you do get a scene there of paul kersey or whatever his name is in the i think it's still paul kersey the remake of using youtube to learn how to maintain his guns and stuff so they did they did their work okay but it's not (laughs) the original it's not bronson and so Well, all right. Well, you all have your homework. Read Nixon's memoirs and watch Death Wish. (laughs) The whole
1: franchise. (laughs) The
0: whole franchise.
1: And spinoffs.
0: Right. and, And there will be a quiz. All right. Well, this has been a brief history of power. Thank you all for listening. You know where to find us.